Um, faith in the time of famine. Famine's an interesting thing. And kind of where this has come from for me, just wrestling with this for weeks, kind of begins with, when I was in college, a statement that I heard that I received that was pretty common to kind of Christianity or evangelical Christianity. And it's one of those interesting things that isn't Scripture, yet because it's so common and familiar, we begin to treat it as if it's some kind of a spiritual maxim or true. And this was true in Jesus' day, too. He used to talk to the Pharisees about separating out what God's Word says from the traditions or kind of uh, what the, the cultural things were. And the funny thing is we have those things, too. We have those things that kind of begin to kind of glob together. And the statement was this. It was a, I think it came from a, a Christian nonprofit and a track that they used to use and kind of really spread far. Uh, and I think they meant it in a different way, but, but this is the statement. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Anybody ever heard that? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, I've begun to really wrestle with that. And I think that whatever was intended by that statement, the way we perceive it or the way we hear it is actually uh, really wrong. It's bad theology. It's like most bad theology. It's the kind of thing that when you really apply pressure to it, it begins to just crack and show itself for being kind of um, unfit. And a famine, more than anything else, is a season of life where that puts our theology to the test. A famine is, is essentially the lack of rain, the lack of, of weather, the lack of climate needed to nurture and bring about the stuff that's going to sustain or give life. Okay, So a famine literally is a climate under which you slowly die. It's uh, in climbing terms, if any of you guys are a climber, the, the, what's called the death zone. So above 26,000 feet, there's only a handful of mountains in the world that get that high. But above 26,000 feet, you're physically, humans are physically unable to replace the amount of oxygen that we utilize such that uh, over a short period of time, your functions, your body functions will begin to shut down you'll eventually lose consciousness and then die. It's a climate, it's, a, it's, a, it's an air under which you cannot live or, or live very long. That's what a famine is. And what I've kind of begun to realize is a famine is something that either can exist for a season in life or it can exist for the duration of your life. And it's a, it's a set of circumstances under which you slowly wither or slowly die. And, and we're familiar with this. If you've ever had a business partner um, flip on you and go the other way, or you work somewhere where you literally are dying, but there's no other option, or you have a family that's just abusive or caustic, an ex um, that no matter what you try is, is going to be a circumstance or situation that will always pull it out. We, we have bad economies and we have bad health. I think health is kind of the easiest maybe of all to, 
to recognize or understand that it's a season of life um, or might remain for the duration of life under which your very life begins to, to drain out or go away. You're sick. You're literally sick. And it's a famine. And so we come to a position of famine and all of a sudden we ask this question of how do I have faith in a time of famine? And that kind of maxim of God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, what do we do with that? Have you ever felt, I mean, I, I have. Have you ever gone up to somebody who's sick or dying and it's, it's just like you don't know what to say to them because you know <clears throat> there's no wonderful plan for their life. And we're so used to just smiling and giving cliches and pats on the back and that, that you kind of realize you can't really say that or do that. And so you, it's uncomfortable. Like you don't know what spiritually to, to give that person. Or if the conversation is about how everything's going to get wonderful again, you're kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, it really will. But inside you're just like, I'm glad we can talk like that because it's more comfortable even though I know it's, you know, I'm just making it up. Uh, or you walk into church and you've got a homeless person or a disabled person or somebody who you look at and you, you just don't think they have what it takes to thrive again. It's really uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable because, hey, I'm on a path to having a wonderful life. That's, what it, that's where I'm going. That's, that's my destination. God's also helping me get there. That's, that's my calling. It's God's plan for my life, and it's a wonderful plan. I'm not so sure about you, though. Um, you're never going to change. You couldn't hold down a job if, if I found you one. I don't know what to do with you. you. You don't fit the model. I can't really give you anything, um, so you're kind, of, you're kind of an anomaly. But not only that, you drag me down because I'm going somewhere that you can't go. And so this relationship is like driving with the parking brakes on. I don't know what to do with you. I, I wish you would find a different church because we're a group of people who have wonderful futures in store for us. And uh, you're, bringing, you're bringing us down. The, uh, that idea is, is a really funky one. And where it leads us is a really funky place. I, I think I'll just say it, but um, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I'll tell you how I hear that. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. What's, what's the subject? What's the end in mind? What's the, what's the thing I'm really latching on to? My life being wonderful. Better than your life. And yours and yours and yours. Um, and God becomes the thing, the mechanism, the utility, the, the device, which is going to help nurture and maximize my life. I mean, I was doing all right when I was sinning and when I was making a lot of mistakes. And, you know, I was still doing pretty good. You know, I had intelligence and, you know, I was making some money. Now that I'm a Christian and I'm adding wisdom and divine assistance because I pray to, to what was already pretty good, just think where it's going to flower. You know, 
Like, it's really cool that God is going to now help maximize and serve this, this end, this goal. So saying God loves me is really a cover for saying God serves me. That God is no more than a functional device that I am at the center and not God. It's a really fascinating realization, I think, how we kind of twist and we can kind of turn that. But when we come to Scripture, we, we begin to find that this American idea of God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life is not the language of Scripture. It's not the direction. Like in Americans, we just think everything is going to always get better and better and better and better. You know, if something isn't great, it's an anomaly, it'll change tomorrow. But things are going to get better and better and better and better. If you took Facebook as an example, 98% of the people in this world are happy, satisfied, content, and have wonderful things going on. We all believe that, that we project that because we believe that's where it should be going. And a famine throws us. Famine throws us. Let me... Get us into Jeremiah here. Jeremiah chapter 12. And I'll give us the context and then we'll kind of begin in the beginning of chapter 12. But Jeremiah chapter 12. Jeremiah is one of the major prophets. So the wisdom literature is um, Psalms and Proverbs and Job and Ecclesiastes are considered wisdom literature. And then you get to the major prophets and the minor prophets, which are a lot shorter uh, but you got Isaiah and then Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 12. Now, Jeremiah's got an interesting deal going on. He's a prophet called by God to go into a context that, that is about to, f- to face God's discipline. They're about to endure God's wrath. There's literally an army, the Babylonians, a country that's going to come, that's going to defeat them that's going to slaughter them, that's going to carry off what's left and take back to Babylon. This is their, their short future. And Job has the one, or uh, might as well have been, but Jeremiah has the, the wonderful task of standing up into the middle of that culture and proclaiming that. Now, he wasn't the only prophet. Rarely is there ever one voice. There's usually a lot of voices. Um, that's why it's easy for us to look back at the Germans or or, you know, Jim Crow South or whatever and go, what in the world was going on there? Like, how come they couldn't just see how obvious things were? Well, it's because if you existed in that context, it wouldn't have just been one voice or one narrative. It's, it's always a lot of voices. And we're impressionable. People are. So we get caught up in those things. So here's Jeremiah. He's a voice, but there's a lot of voices. And listen to what the other voices are saying before we get to Jeremiah 12. But here's uh, Jeremiah chapter 5. It says this. They have lied about the Lord. This, these are the other voices, okay, the false prophets. They have lied about the Lord, and they've said, He will do nothing. No harm will come to us. We will never see sword or famine. Now, in the Old Testament, you've got this formula. Um, it's, it's the sword, it's famine, and the plague. Those three things get used a lot in conjunction with each other. The sword is literally 
what would come against a community or a people group from other people, the sword. Famine is literally the withholding, in some sense, of nature's bounty or nature's resources. Plague is literally the inserting of nature in a way that's destructive. And so you see this kind of uh, trifecta here of the sword, the famine, and the plague. And you've got these prophets in Jeremiah's day saying, listen, uh, nothing bad will happen to us. It's all going to go well. We will never see, never see, in our lifetime at least, the sword or famine. God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our life. And then we get to chapter 12. And Jeremiah has just realized that by being the minority voice, by being the dissonant voice in a very political and religious context, that people have literally turned on him and, and now there's a bounty on his head. There's, there's a, there are death threats. He's living with the fear now of people coming and killing him. And so in Jeremiah chapter 12, we read this. You are always righteous. This is Jeremiah praying to God. So you are always righteous, O Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Here's what we need to realize. When we do justice, when we understand it, when we empathize with God's heart for people, we come to know God better. We see that... Uh, in a bunch of places, we see it, I think, most prominently in the Psalms, Proverbs, and then in, in the prophets when they're talking about King Josiah. And God literally says, he gave to the poor and the needy. And is that not what it means to know me? That he is loving people like I love people. And there's a like-mindedness that comes from that such that we know God better when we're acting in concert with God. So justice, I actually argue, is a theological necessity. If we're going to understand God fully, justice has to be a part of that because it's such a part of God. Pain, suffering, and injustice, if doing those things and understanding God this way helps bring us closer to God, experiencing pain, suffering, or injustice tends to get in the way of our knowing God and create separation and doubt. They're two different effects. Does that make sense? The first thing that happens when you're suffering or you're the victim of injustice is that you begin to question God's existence or God's justice. Are you really good, God? So we see Jeremiah do what Job does and what so many other people have done is we go before God to lay out our case and say, it doesn't look right God, you've made an arithmetic error in my life. I'd like to show you your error. So that it's right here. This and this don't add up to the life I'm supposed to have. Um, now that I show it to you, you should fix that, those circumstances. We go to God when we're suffering and question his justice. Now, God's going to answer Jeremiah, and, and it's fascinating. When God answers us, he rarely ever answers the question we ask. It's uh, Robert McNamara who said, you know, I mean, he had to be the, the Secretary of Defense during the Vietnam War, so he learned it real quick. Uh, never answer the question you're asked. Answer the question you wish you'd been asked, you know. 
God never answers the question we ask. When Job came to him, his first response to Job was, get ready. He said it like this, brace yourself like a man, Job. Now, I've tried to picture that. I'm a visual guy. How do you brace yourself like a man when, when God's about to drop straight atomic bomb truth on you? I mean, do you grab like a tree? <laughs> you know, a chair? Do you tie yourself to something? You know, like, how do you brace yourself for that? It's fascinating. But God does this now with Jeremiah. He's not going to mince words. He's not going to coddle him. And he says this, beginning in verse 5. God says, If you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, then how can you compete with horses? If you stumble in safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? It's a military analogy, initially. You're competing, you're, you're running with, you're uh, dealing with other people on foot. And it's, and it's kind of this picture of contest. And God's saying, if you're finding that to be too difficult, what happens when, when I turn the heat up and the stakes get raised and now it's the Calvary? And it's horses. If this is too much for you, Jeremiah, you're about to tap out. What's going to happen when the horses show up and it doubles? See, God's like, hey, Jeremiah, um, have you been listening to the words that I've had you say to people? I've been having you tell them that trouble's coming. People are going to die. This nation's going to get carted off. It's going to be messy. Okay, that's worse than death threats. So if you're really struggling now, how are you going to survive this thing when the full wave comes in? If you run and compete with the footmen and they wear you out, how are you going to run or compete with horses? And then he goes on and says, if you stumble in the safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? Now, if we were to continue on in Jeremiah... Uh, and get down to chapter 49, verse 19. There's a couple other places that say this. But it says this, like a lion coming up from Jordan's thickets to the rich pasture land. The imagery here is one of literally the thickets of Jordan or the jungle. It's kind of, uh, it's kind of the messy, scary, unsafe place. It's where lions live. It's not where it's safe. And God is saying... If you stumble in the safe country, the rich pasture land, where, I mean, there's, you know, there's a couple rocks to trip over, then how are you going to deal with the lions? How are you going to deal with the jungle? It's a, it's a pretty crazy thing that God is saying here. Let's put it in context. Famine is typically referred to as, as something that, that literally lasts into time, it's not just we missed a rainstorm or we had a problem or whatever. It's, it's a season where it continues to get worse. In 2007, 2008, 
I think a lot of people in, in this economy uh, got upended. You lose a house, you lose everything in some sense, you go bankrupt. And I think a lot of those people after a year landed on their feet. And, and a lot of my friends would articulate, it brought our family together. It helped us discern what our priorities should be. It, it, it helped bring us together. It, it showed us who our friends really are. Like, you know, it was bad and it was traumatic. However, uh, it, was, it was actually a good thing. But those same people, I have friends that are suffering. What happens when you've gone through bankruptcy, but then you still can't pay the bills? Your kind of fail-safe is gone. And what happens when you've lost your house and you're in a rental, but then you, you can't even afford the rent on the rental? What happens when you've gone through all these things and you've burned everything up, but then you lose your job or your industry? Or the family that got brought together through all these trials somehow now implodes and fractures and you're left with nothing. The, the initial shock, sometimes we weather that and we get excited because good can come from that. And, and we come over here, but then when the next wave hits or the next wave or the next wave, all of a sudden we're just stripped down and we're in this time of famine and we're literally dying and and now we're screaming out to God and going, are you there? Are you even just? Do you even care? It's a whole different set of questions. And the whole American dream kind of ideology that we bring in is kind of thrown out at that point. And we're just, we're undone. And the answer we want, usually in that prayer, is immediate, immediate relief, immediate change, circumstances to quickly come about to end the famine. What Jeremiah teaches us here is that sometimes the difficulty is actually something to train you or shape you for greater difficulty yet to come. Now, if you go to Africa where they have a theology of suffering, they understand how God and suffering and us kind of all fit into a worldview. They understand this better than we do. For us, suffering is not something that exists in the context of the recipe of life. It's, it's an anomaly. It's something weird. It's something that doesn't belong. It's something that God is responsible to have to deal with because... Surely, sword or famine will never come, come against us. So we see that the reality is, like a parent with a child, I don't coddle my children all the time. Because sometimes I realize they have to go through trials because greater trials are going to come. And they have to be tested and they have to learn and they have to grow up and they have to be able to, in that maturity, deal with even greater challenges and difficulties. And so as a parent, I let them go through a lot of these knowing there's more yet to come. There's another sense in Scripture too. We see with Moses, we see with David, we see with Peter in, in a very interesting way that a lot of the trials that come are literally there to help grow our capacity 
to deliver on a call that God has on our life. That our challenges literally are a part of building for us or moving us into a place where God can leverage us for greater influence. Peter, this rash guy who always had the simple answer, is literally willing to take people's lives to defend Jesus. He knows what it's all about. And Jesus says, really, do you really have it all figured out? Before this night ends, you're going to be so ridiculously confused and upended that you're going to deny me three times. And then, sure enough, it happens. And then Jesus comes back and he gets to Peter. And the interesting thing is we don't see in Scripture Jesus going one-on-one to all 12 of his disciples. We see him kind of cut right through it and grab Peter and say, Hey, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Okay, good, because I want you to go feed and to lead my sheep. And oh, by the way, there's going to come a day when you're not going to dress yourself and and people are going to lead you to where you don't want to go. You're going to be martyred. But you need to know that I love you. You love me. That that relationship is what anchors you. And what you've gone through in this interaction with me, I am growing you up into a calling that I have on your life. And you're going to leverage that for great influence. And one of the things we do is we go through trials that make no sense to us in the moment. And somehow, some way, God redeems those things. You know, I, not to make light of any of it, but your greatest pain is probably also your greatest point of influence. The people I see that help counsel and love on victims of, of abuse are oftentimes those who abuse themselves. Those who are, are surrounding people that are going through bankruptcy, guess what? It's people that have gone through bankruptcy and survived and they're telling them, here's how you can have faith in the midst of this famine. And it's people that have dealt with alcoholism or drugs or, or difficulty in relationships or work or all the different kinds of struggles that are out there. Losing a child, dealing with an illness in a child which is broken as, as, as it gets, yet gives you the capacity to minister. So we see that God, in our greatest instances of pain and suffering often is just hopefully growing us up so that we can weather an even greater challenge. Or a lot of times he's deep at work in our life and in shaping us through this experience because he's going to turn around and a number of years later use you to reach people that otherwise would have had nobody. So we see that the famines, the difficulties often have to do with our greatest challenges or, or the challenges yet to come or with the calling that God's going to put on our life. But we don't, um, we don't ever... See, here's the interesting thing. When I talk about Americans or American Christianity or whatever, I don't talk like there's a line here. You guys are American Christians. Shame on you and let me preach at you. Okay? You want to know how I figure out what American Christians are thinking? <laughs> I look at my wife. 
And I think, uh, no, I, uh, I just check what's in my gut. I check what's in my gut. I struggle with this stuff. I struggle when I read about the reality of pain and suffering and difficulty in Scripture because in my gut, I want to make it like this. It's like when you end up on a field trip and you go to Disneyland and you, you get off the bus and that teacher that nobody likes but's on a power trip, you know that teacher? Forces you guys all to circle up and, and the power trip is at its best right now because she's keeping you from Disneyland. And that feeds, you know, that feeds the, the thing, the beast. And she's going to lay out, it could be a he, I'm sorry. Um, he lays out ground rules for Disneyland. Now, stick together. Um, here's where you go if you get lost. Uh, be on the lookout for this. You need to put your money in a safe place, put it in your front pocket. There's pickpockets here. But the ground rules before you go into Disneyland, you get what I'm saying? Okay. Here's what I turn those passages of Scripture that have to do with pain or suffering, I turn them into that voice. And that voice, when you're with your friends and you're ready to go to Disneyland, you're saying, yeah, 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 yeah. You're not disagreeing with any of it. You know that it's all true. But the attitude is, none of it applies to me. I don't disagree with anything you're saying. Hurry up and shut up, because really, none of it applies to me. When the Bible talks about <laughs> the difficult things, or, or that, that life will be difficult, and, and it talks about it in these little ways all throughout Scripture, I tend to kind of give it a yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's not for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's true, it's in the Bible it's not really relevant to me. I mean, I might know people who it's relevant to. Man, their life sucks. Like, I hope they don't go to my church. I wouldn't know what to say to them. But that doesn't apply to me. God loves me and is working hard on a wonderful plan for my life. And so, Maybe I'm the only one, but I, I think that's a little bit of just American Christianity that we've syncretized our sense of the American dream and self-gratification with our theology to make some kind of a weird thing that doesn't necessarily reflect Scripture. So here's the question. God literally called the disciples to go and preach the good news to all the world with the idea that all of them except for like one were going to be martyred. Martyred. When was the last time you prayed to God expecting to hear an answer like that? We, would we pray? Or would we hide our eyes if we knew God was going to require something of us we didn't really want to give? 
I mean, here's the deal. I think I, I, I try to put filters between me and God that filters out anything that doesn't fit wonderful life and only allows the stuff that's going to magnify my life or maximize my life get through. And I think I put these filters in and I try to theologize it so that I don't feel like the bad person, the unrighteous person, the person without faith. I find subtle little ways of hiding from myself the fact that I'm hiding from God. And as my daughter told me yesterday, one of my daughters said, Dad, hiding is a form of lying. And I was just like, I tweeted it. Maybe you saw it. It's like the first time I've tweeted in a month. Um, I hate tweeting. Because you've got to try and look cooler than you really are, which is a lot of work. It, it is, so I just don't do it. Because if you fail, then you look stupid. So I, I just never know to tweet or not to tweet. That is the question. <laughs> Yesterday I tweeted, though, that hiding is a form of lying. I wouldn't make a good uh, martyr. I, I wouldn't. I, uh, I'm not there yet. Maybe someday. I wouldn't now. I wouldn't be like Mel Gibson and Braveheart. I'd be screaming and crying like a baby. I'd be trying to offer all you guys up for trade. Um, I wouldn't make a good martyr. I'll tell you what, though. I make a great example of someone with a wonderful life. God, you should give me a wonderful life. Want to know why? Because I'll give you the credit unlike anybody else. I'll rejoice and take joy in my fortune more than anybody. I will, I'm made to be a great example in the middle of a great life. So you should really call me to that because it's a good use of my gifts and my talents. That's, uh, that's what's in my gut. I think the only virtue, I, when I got married, I was still really rough around the edges. If you think I'm rough now, you should have seen me then. But I... Uh, it was, Tamara and I had a long conversation one night, and, you know, some people had pointed out to her how rough I was around the edges, and they were like, sure, you want to do this? And I talked to her, and I just said, listen, I might be a negative seven, but in two years, I'll be a negative three. Give me 10 years, I'll be a positive seven. I said, you can ask those same people that know my rough edges if I'm teachable. Um... I started from such a hole that it's the only thing I ever grabbed onto. It's, it's the one thing I can claim. I'm teachable. Um, so that's what you get. I'm not a good martyr. I don't think I want it. I think, I think if God was trying to call me to it, I'd at least hide for a while, maybe get on a ship and run away, which doesn't work well, by the way. It's a different sermon. Um, but I think what God's given me is the ability to be very aware of my own self. And so for weeks, what I've been wrestling with is just this. So what of faith in a time of famine? Can I be okay with famine? If I'm in famine, what do I do? What's the response? How, how do I latch on to that? And here's the answer that I've come up with. Maybe you come up with a better answer. 
In a time of famine, we have to look to God rather than circumstance for our comfort. You know, in a time of famine, you've got confusion on one hand and exhaustion on the other, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's the two extremes that you're trying to find a, a path between. Confusion and exhaustion. And what you find is the thread that connected you with God, the thin thread when everything was going well, you know, that everything's, you're a good Christian, you go to church, you know, you have a Bible, you actually use it, you talk at lunch about Christianity, you don't care if anyone hears you, you know, you're okay with it all. There's, you know, that, that thin thread that connects you with God doesn't feel all that great when you're hanging off a ledge. All of a sudden, the, thin, the thinness of that thread freaks you out, right? The greatest thing in a time of famine is, is faith. The greatest thing in a time of famine is our relationship with God. The, the thing we get, the thing we're promised, is that thread, that relationship with God. Here's the answer. How would I rewrite the God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? I'll tell you how I'd rewrite it. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you in Christ Jesus. Turn to Romans with me, if you would. Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, we see something really interesting. Pick it up in uh, verse 33. Romans 8, 33. It says this, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is it that then condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. It doesn't matter how bad it gets. It doesn't matter how much you mess up. It doesn't matter how weak you are. Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God, and he's got you. He's filling God's ear full of stuff like that. I got him. He's mine. I love him. He's one of, one of, one of, he's one of mine. So no matter how much we, we stray or we, we end up off the cliff, Jesus sees us there and he's, I got him. He belongs. He's in. He's, he's, he's a part of what I love. He's a part of my sphere of concern. And so Paul continues on and says this, Jesus is at the right hand interceding. And he says, who shall separate us then from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution? Now, this implies that these things are going to happen in life. Do you understand that? That's, that's what a theology of suffering understands, is that what's implied here is that these things are going to be a normal part of life. But he says, who should separate us? Trouble, hardship, persecution, or famine? He answers in verse 37, No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor, uh, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God 
that is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Whatever the famine is and whatever the hardship is, the thing we're given is relationship. The thing we're given is the love of God that's never going to let us go. It's the thing that we look to for comfort. God always gives a different answer than what we want, but he always answers, you see. And Jesus says, look, unless I go, God can't send the comforter that is the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is very concerned that the comforter come. Why? So that comfort would go with us despite our trials or persecutions or tribulations. And so what we have, what we get to enjoy, what we get to run to is that God is there, that God cares, and that he will bring comfort. What does the church exist for? It says in Hebrews, the apostle writes, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Why were they giving up meeting together? Because they were getting persecuted. You're getting lumped in and singled out because you guys are meeting together as Christians. Ah, and they freak out and there's persecution and, and the apostle says, don't stop meeting together. You're literally the body of Christ. That's where you're going to get comfort. Each, you, each, each of you to the other is showing the face of Christ that, that, that God cares and that God loves. And you're able to pray to someone who knows even deeper than you what that pain feels like. And God cares. And so instead of looking for the fix... And then when it's not there, we kind of shake it like a toy. It's broken. This God thing is broken. Now what? Oprah. Seriously, what do you turn to? I'll medicate the pain. I'll plug into TV. I'll find a distraction. I'll do whatever. But this, this thing that was supposed to work is broken, never realizing that God's there in the midst of it, and that God loves you. If you look to him, God will comfort you, and that he will help acclimate you to your circumstance. Real quickly, there's several instances in Samuel, and then in Psalms, and then in Habakkuk, where there's this fascinating phrase that's used. I put it up there in the King James because it's a lot cooler in the King James. It says this, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord despite all of the problems, despite all of the things that's going on. Here's another prophet that's taken all of the suffering and he gets to the end and says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he will make my feet like hinds feet. And he will make me to walk upon my high places. And this is the phrase that's used in Scripture in several places. And the idea is this. When you think of the high places, which stands as a metaphor for like altitude and getting up above the fray and getting closer to God or, or in, in the better place in life, the high places, it's the craggy places. It's the rocky places. And you think of um, a doe or, uh, you know, a, a goat or whatever. You know what I mean? You think of... The kind of thing that's able to walk and to move and to, to exist in the high places. And God is saying, <laughs> I literally will shape your feet. I will work with you and I will acclimate you, Jeremiah, to your circumstances. I will be there involved so that you can, can, 
can run in the high places. I'm going to grow you up. I'm, I'm going to nurture you. And it might not feel great, but I am going to acclimate you to the circumstances that I have for you. And our prayer lives will change radically when we don't start always assuming that God has to change the circumstances or acclimate the environment to fit us, but that very well God's plan might be, and the thing that we have to be open to hearing is that God wants to shape us to go with the circumstances that are in our life. It's interesting, this Habakkuk ends by saying this is for the music director to play on a stringed instrument. You want to know what worship is when Grace is up here singing her heart out and, and leading us in worship? It's us crying out to a big God that's big enough to fear and big enough to be in awe of, not some small lowercase g that we've created that serves us. It's to cry out to God for faith, for comfort, for healing, that we would see him, that we would hear him. Napoleon said something really interesting. He says the, the first virtue in a soldier is endurance of fatigue. Courage is only the second virtue. The ability to hear God call you to be a martyr is the first virtue of a disciple. Being willing to, to manifest joy if he gives you a great life, I don't know if it's the second virtue, but um, it's further down. St. John of the Cross said this, one act of thanksgiving made when things go wrong is worth one act of thanksgiving when a thousand things go well. One act of thanksgiving made when things go wrong is worth a thousand when things go well. Father God, we are weak. We're weaker than we want to realize we are often. and It's hard for us to pray the kinds of prayers that we don't really have the nerves to pray. We don't have the nerves to receive answers. So we're weak and we, we so hunger for the perfect life, the good life, the happy life, for pleasure. And God, I just sense in my own gut just such a fear of the possibility that you would actually intend to use or to utilize suffering in my life. God, there's a lot of us that are going through famines and I just pray that in that, the one thing we would hear and that we'd sense over and over is that you love us. That you do have a plan for us and that you are wonderful. Anchor us, Father, comfort us, be near to us, grow us up into the image of your Son in Christ's name.